How many of you ever heard that Depeche Mode song right there, my, Your Own Personal Jesus? Okay, I, I know that's a, definitely a younger generation thing. Some of you that are maybe probably 40 and over might, might be a little challenged to have heard that, um, unless you, you know, listen to contemporary pop radio. And you wonder why in the world would I open a message with that song? And the reason that I do so is because I want to deal with this whole thing in this Mythbuster series that we deal with in America, and that is kind of a hyphenated gospel. Um, the, the, the title of the message today is found on this T-shirt. If you shop at Urban Outfitters, nothing against this store. They have some really cool clothes that are very, I don't shop there. They don't, they don't have uh, sizes in SUV. <laughs> That's okay. Some of you are built for speed. Some of us are built for luxury. <laughs> Some of you are little Miatas, and I just happen to be an Escalade. <laughs> uh, Haley was going to share this message today, and um, she asked me to step in and, and take it. She was out with her family on vacation, and she actually awarded this lovely T-shirt to me, which I am going to spare you by squeezing into it today because it's one size too small, and that would probably distract you from all these muscles and my ab, my one ab that I have. <laughs> um, is this whole idea of Jesus is my homeboy? Um, and you're probably thinking, well, you know, man, I would be proud of my teenager to wear a shirt like that to school. And let me just say to you, you know, I would too to stand up for Jesus. But it's not that simple. And so today I just want to hit you right out of the chute with my first point. God created man and then man recreated God in his own image. God created man and man recreated God in his own image. I want you, if you would with me, please, to stand because I'm going to share a scripture today found in Isaiah chapter 15. I'm sorry, Isaiah 15, I'll get it right. What, what is it about our culture that would give us our own personal Jesus? What is it that this rock group is that this alternative group is actually saying to us? Um, I, I think they're really pretty prophetic in terms of the insight when they look at Christianity in America that we've just sort of made Jesus in our own image. And however we like him, we just sort of carve out our own. And what we end up doing is we make an idol. And so today we begin with Isaiah 57. I want you to read these two verses with me, and then I'll have two more that I've added since I sent the message notes or the media notes to Pastor Alex. So here we go. Let's read together. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now think about this. This is an enormous contrast between a God that is so far above us, which is literally what the word holy means. It is something that we're not. It is otherwiseness. 
God is something we are not. We're going to talk about that today. And these two are the verses that follow actually in the same prophetic book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Listen. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Thus says the Lord, it begins. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place for my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I look. Hear it. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Say that as those last three words with me. Trembles at my word. Say it again. Trembles at my word. Father, we humble ourselves this morning. We want to be the one that you actually stop and look at. I humble myself. Lord, I, I, I want to be contrite before you. I, I, I fall down on the rock and I'm broken before you today. I just, even as I've done in my own prayer time this week, I just say, Father, cleanse me of every bit of pride and scrub me of any arrogance concerning the word and what I think I know about your Bible. <clears throat> I pray today, Holy Ghost, that you would just be the teacher the way only you can be, and you would be actively involved in the hearing, Lord, in comforting and counseling and teaching and guiding and guarding the hearts of your sheep that are in this place this morning. I just ask you to get up in the middle of this because I cannot do anything apart from you, and I, I just say that, Lord, I need you. I need you, Jesus, right now. Be all that you are and that, that you can do alone in the hearts of these people. We ask you for this in Jesus' name and everybody said, you may be seated. Jesus is my homeboy. What's wrong with that? Point number one, God created man. He made man in his image and then we created God in ours. We have in America developed our own personal Jesus. Now, the teacher in me always makes an attempt to go back and connect you to what we have said, and, and I want to take about three minutes maximum just to remind you in this Mythbusters series, we're really dealing with some things that are not altogether false, but they're just partial truths. They, there is a tension because we can find them in the Word, but yet what has come to be applied through an incorrect interpretation or an improper application of the word or a misunderstanding of the word has led us to believe each of these myths in our society in America as American Christians. The first one was, I started the series, Real Christians Don't Judge. And everybody goes to Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. But then they don't read the five verses that follow, which actually teach you how to judge right judgment. And so the, the myth is that you don't judge at all. When Jesus said, I, wanna, I want you, in, in John 7, he said, I want you to stop judging by mere outward appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. It's all over the word. It's, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that the saints will judge angels. Are we not to judge the world, is what the scripture declares. And so if you ignore that passage and you only look at Matthew 7, 1, and you just leave everything that follows it out, then we come up with real Christians don't judge. And that's not correct. That is a myth. You need to engage your discernment. 
You need to not judge by an outward appearance, but you need to judge with what Jesus called right judgment or righteous judgment. Somebody say amen. Number two, Pastor Haley, our children's minister, came along and did a marvelous job on the message, it's all good. Because this is just a common societal term, it's all good. And you know, a lot of times in America, we, we sometimes give the idea that if you come to Jesus, that life is just kind of a bed of roses. And I just want to tell you, that's not the case. There is suffering and there is sighing and there are, there are victories and there are mountaintops and there are valleys and there are tragedies and there are triumphs and all of these things together. There are times to shout and times to weep. And the beauty of that is, the truth is that in Christ, God is able to work all of your circumstances together, negative and positive, for your good. So that in Christ, but only in Christ alone, that it really is all good. Pastor Jeremy did an awesome job the next week, and he talked about the myth of let go and let God, which by itself and in its extreme form produces spiritual laziness. I disconnect, and I just basically say, well, I'm just not going to worry about it. I'm going to let God handle it. And that's kind of my excuse to say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to do anything. How many of you know there's a job to be done? Look at your neighbor and say, we've got something to do. You, you, well, somebody says, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. And, and we see that as an excuse for inactivity. Now, you're going to get up and you're going to go to the restaurant following this service today. And if you tip the waiter who waits on you, you're going to do it because he or she has done a good job bringing your food in a timely manner and keeping your iced tea filled to the brim. They're going to make sure that you're taken care of. That waiter is not just laying back and saying, well, I'm just going to let go and let God take care of this customer but they're actively waiting on you. So to say that I'm waiting on God does not mean that I'm just sitting around not doing anything. It means I'm actively pursuing the will of God that I know he's called me to do. Everybody say, to do. Pastor Alex did an awesome job last week on actions speak louder than words. That is a true statement. But when we just let that hang by itself in America and we start saying, well, I'll just live lifestyle evangelism and just let the world basically see that I love Jesus by my actions, and we think that that's an excuse for us to never share the gospel or talk about Jesus, yes, actions speak louder than words, and it ought to be lined up with it. The whole purpose of that point in the first place was to say, you know what, I can't hear what you're saying because your actions are screaming at me. That's the other side of it. So make sure that our walk matches our talk, our life matches our lip, but don't stop moving your lips sharing the gospel of Jesus. Keep on talking about Jesus. Come on, somebody, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. So all of these things are myths, and three things I want to give you this morning. Christian myths are caused by three things. Number one, they're caused by taking a scripture out of context. I can take a verse in the Bible, and I can just about come up and concoct the most ridiculous kind of theology that you could ever imagine if I will pull a verse out of context because a text without a context is a pretext. And that's a preacher's idea of what says, I can make the Bible say anything I want to if I pull it out of the context in which it's written. I need to know the history. I need to know the language. I need to know the culture. I need to know why it was said, to whom it was said, what was the reason behind all of that what is the context of that thing? If I pull something out of its context, I can really concoct some pretty harebrained schemes. That's how we justified slavery in the 1800s. That's how Hitler killed six million Jews because there was something contextually removed. 
and they saw the Jews as the enemies of God. Historically, we've seen this happen over and over, and we, we get aberrant theology. We head down heretical trails. It becomes heresy when we start to do the first thing, pull Scripture out of context, or the second one, number two, when we start to isolate one portion of Scripture apart from the whole. We take one whole subject of the Word of God, like faith, and we make it paramount, bigger than everything else. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But when I pull faith out and I make it bigger than the sovereignty of God, and I'll talk about this in just a moment, I end up actually believing that my faith can tie the hands of God behind his back and make him do something for me that I want him to do if I just have enough faith. And obviously, that's crazy. But this is what ends up in the minds of Christians because of sometimes the swinging pendulum of truth. Everybody see this? I've got one extreme on this side, and I swing over to the other side. And many times when I'm in one, God will, in order to break me out of this, because God is not afraid of extremes, he will show me the extreme truth in the word in an attempt to bring me back to a place of balance. Now, let me just say this to you today. There are messages that I preach that touch you. This is a message that's going to teach you. Are you with me? Okay, sometimes I jump up and down and I'm excited and man, I work up a lather and it's a praise God and we're swinging from the chandeliers. But today, I am not so much wanting to touch your emotions as I want to teach your mind. Victory is a place where you can experience God, but you don't have to check your brain at the door. I want you to be a thinking Christian. Everybody say those words right now. Thinking Christian. Too often, we experience extremes because the pendulum of truth is swinging. We grow up thinking that it's spiritual to be poor. And then we begin to see scriptures like Psalm 37, I'm sorry, 35, 27, which says, The Lord delights in the prosperity of his servant. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. And I'm starting on the pendulum. I'm getting out of this idea that I've got to be broke, disgusted, and sad my whole life. And I start to get the idea that Jesus actually wants me to be blessed and to prosper and be in health even as my soul prospers, 3 John 2. And I start seeing all of these things over here. And I move from one side of the pendulum of, of, of thinking that it's spiritual to be poor and I move over to the other side. But what I start to do when I get into the extreme end is I stop saying godliness with contentment is great gain. And I switch it around to where I start saying gain is godliness. And Jesus wants to bless me with my own four-car McMansion. Nothing wrong with a big house, nothing wrong with fine cars. But when we start to think that we're spiritual because we have them, we have just run headlong out of one ditch and gotten into the, bathing into the dirty water of the other ditch, ditch on the other side of the road. Forgive me, Jesus. ditch <laughs> hey it certainly fits with the Jesus is my homeboy culture 
we have guests here today, and I just hope you come back again. <laughs> okay. Woo, help me. Holy Ghost. Uh, I will not be repeating that point. Number three. <laughs> Number three, repetition. You guys have a great story this week, you can tell. <laughs> Repetition, if you hear a thing long enough, you start to believe it is truth. If you hear a lie told long enough, you start to believe that it's actually the truth. Jesus is my homeboy. We have this whole newly reimaged, Americanized hipster Jesus. God made man, and then man recreated God in his own image. We have our own personal Jesus. Romans chapter 1 is that whole downward spiral into depravity, and I'm not going to read that extended passage or that chapter to you. But the Bible says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Everybody say images. For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so we, we've, we've carved out our own personal Jesus. Commandment number one of the Decalogue, the ten words, Deca, ten, Logos, the ten words, the ten commandments of God is, Thou shalt have no other gods before my face. Number two says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. So you got to decide there's only one God and he is God and I'm not. And then when you decide that he's God, you don't try to erect some kind of a, a facsimile or a representation of him that you bow down to. Whether anything that is in the, the animal kingdom, whether it's a, in the form of a man or an animal or any kind of a creeping thing, you don't carve it out of wood and make a totem pole and you, you don't do all of these things that all of the cultures of the world who've been born with this yearning to find significance and reality in something that is higher than themselves, reaching for something that is transcendent. All of man, I, I teach world civilizations at Victory University in Memphis on Monday nights, and four-hour class, and every time we look at a culture, we always look at a culture through the religious lens. How does that people see themselves in terms of the God that they serve? This morning, how you see Jesus is a direct understanding of how you see yourself. And many times, it was John Calvin who said this. He said, a man cannot know himself until he first knows who God is. So just, just understanding the purpose to which you were created can only be understood and defined by your first of all recognizing that you didn't just get here by chance, but God put you here and has a purpose and a destiny for your life. We've seen, we've seen some examples in our culture. The social gospel in the early 20th century stopped talking about sin and their battle. The struggle was not against sin, but it was against political institutions that limit the progress of man. It was very enlightenment-oriented, the perfectibility of man. We can really make a perfect society if we will just deal with the injustices in the political institutions of America. And the social gospel was preached. Mid-20th century, we have some stuff going on down in South America and there are various Latin, Latin countries that are trying to break free from 
dictatorships, and we have a whole new branch of what's called liberation theology, and it's the liberation gospel. It literally paints Jesus, and they, they would have they would have they have paintings that literally would show Jesus like a Che Guevara. It was a he was a revolutionary who was armed with whatever the latest technology of a gun was, and he was locked and loaded, ready to help. The, the weak be able to rise up against the tyranny of the strong. And it painted Jesus in a certain way. They had their own personal Jesus. Came into the 70s. I'm about 10 years old. And the faith message emerged in the United States of America. And it was a great truth that we needed to grab a hold of. But we were over here in one end. And so many times as the pendulum swings so hard and we take it out of context or we isolate it from the rest of Scripture and we start standing up thanking God that there are promises in the Word that we can believe and trust on. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the Bible says, He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. For without God is, for without faith, it is impossible to please God. How many of you thankful faith for faith in your heart this morning? I'm thankful I have some faith. But somehow the pendulum began to swing a little bit too far and it, was, it got on the whole confession and the power of the spoken word. And those are still truths in the scripture that are found. Death and life is in the power of the tongue and you can create your reality by the words that you speak. But when I start confessing a promise and I start to declare that my faith now is the thing that makes and demands God to move and I think that I can push God's hand behind his back and wrangle him into giving me something then I've just now begun to no longer recognize him as God, but now my faith is God. Are you following me this morning? Again, I said I'm not after touching, I'm after to teach you today. Because we swing this pendulum so far, and you know we, we started hearing this in the 80s as the faith message began to morph into the prosperity gospel. And, and that's how you spell Jesus, no longer with two S's, but it's with two dollar signs. J-E dollar sign, U dollar sign. Jesus, and you say it with a mouthful of gold teeth, and, and it's all about status and the label and the car you're driving and the, the address at which you live and the checkbook and all these kinds of things, and it's all about, yes, does God want to prosper you? Yes, but it's been pushed so far to the other extreme that as we start to identify that we're spiritual because we've got all this stuff. How many of you know you can have a whole bunch of stuff in your heart not anywhere, anywhere be near right with Jesus? which is pretty much the state of America. Don't shout me down. Am I telling you the truth this morning or not? And, and really, the prosperity gospel is the gospel of the upwardly mobile middle class. It's a I'm socially. I want to climb economically. And how many of you know if you work hard? And that's the real balance. God's given you time. He's given you skills. He's given you talent. Get out here and do like the old Puritans did 500 years ago who believed that it all depended on them, and so they worked like it all depended on them, but they believed that it all depended on God, so they prayed like it all depended on God. It was an acknowledgment of the part they had to do. It was an acknowledgment of the trust they had to have in the God who was over them. So what's wrong? Dun, 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 dun. Jesus is my homeboy. Somebody's phone's going off. For those of you who are listening to this on the internet this afternoon, let me tell you why Jesus is not your homeboy. Because your homeboy will do things with you that Jesus will not be involved in. Your homeboy will roll up one and light it. Jesus won't hang around to the glory of God. It's a little quiet in here. 
How many of you know it's right? Your homeboy will tie on one and get three sheets to the wind with you. And Jesus will love you and intercede for you. But Jesus is not going to hang out with you like your homeboy will. You can be dismissive with your homeboy no matter what he says. And let me just say this this morning. Your homeboy is probably not going to make any demands on your life. Jesus is going to look at you and he'll say, except you forsake all and follow me, then you're not my disciple. Homeboys don't talk like that. See, there are a couple of things that we have to wrestle with. And there is this large theological truth called transcendence. Everybody say transcendence. Transcendence is this idea of a God who is high. We read it from Isaiah 57. He dwells in eternity. He's the high and holy one. He is the lofty one, the King James says. But the contrast is, is this one who dwells way high, far above us, who's holy and we're not, says, I will look to this one who will tremble at my word and who will humbly come to me. I will come and revive the spirit of the broken and the contrite. So the high one is willing, he's looking to see someone who will humble himself or herself. He's willing to come down from that place of unreachable transcendence and touch you in the place of your personal struggle. And with that, we come to the opposite truth that we have to have both of. The other end of transcendence is this wonderful thing called Eminence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. We sing about it at Christmas when we talk about Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Scott did an awesome job singing that this morning. God with us. Jesus Christ left a throne. He left everything that was transcendent, unreachable, high and holy and lofty, and he chose to come down and took upon himself flesh and became a servant, and he became subject to everything that you and I have to experience in this lowly, earthly realm in which we live. And the transcendent one became the imminent one, God with us. John 1.14, the Bible says, And the Word was made flesh. We call that the incarnation. Incarnation is kind of a big theological term. How many of you have ever had chili con carne? What is con carne? With meat. So when something is incarnated, it is the spirit puts on flesh. As Christians, we believe in the incarnation. We do not believe in reincarnation. God does not recycle your soul for another shot. And you're not going to come back as a rat in the next life. It's not a transmigration of your soul. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. What was it? Gladiator said the things in this lifetime echo in eternity. I reap what I have sown. Physics teaches that. For every action, there is an opposite and equal reaction. The world teaches you what goes around comes around. And so we understand this whole principle. But as Christians, we believe that there's one shot. There's an incarnation. God breathed into you when you were born. And you are a human being made in the image of God. 
We, we, we worship a God who was transcendent, transcendental. He was above all of us. He was transcendent is the right word. And he comes down and he dwells with us. I love it because the message says the word was made flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. So we got to see how he lived. We observed. We heard him speak. We saw his actions the thing that separates Christianity from every other religion of the world is that it is firmly rooted in history. These are verifiable, sustainable historical facts that a man named Jesus lived and died and rose again and was seen by 500, declared to be raised from the dead. Men who were martyred because they wouldn't turn back. People don't give up their lives in order to cover up a lie. So as we talk this morning about transcendence and eminence, if I preach a gospel that where God is so high, then you have no hope. You leave here beat up and bruised and hurt and wounded and hopeless and helpless. But I preach a gospel that shows God high and he, he's a God who loves, but he's also a God who is holy. And I show you that the way that God breached this grand canyon of separation from him is that God came down in the flesh and became a man. He leaves a throne in heaven and he descends and he takes up an abode in a little bitty mangy, lowly manger scene. He, he's born into a feed trough. Cows are mooing and, and, and sheep are bah, and, and, and it stinks. And he comes down into the very stench of humanity and he, he's born into abject poverty so that he would know everything that anybody on the planet would ever experience. But if I preach a Jesus that is so eminent that he's just my buddy and we can just ride together and we can toke a joint together and we can get drunk together, a Jesus who loves me, but a Jesus who's not holy. A Jesus who's my homeboy. A Jesus who will wink at all of my stuff, all of my junk, everything that's not yet fixed in my life. I've got to be faithful to the word. God is holy. He is transcended. But thank God he bridged the gap and he came down and lived among us. Thank you, Jesus, for helping me. So I ask the question, and as I'm wrapping this up today, number two, what is the difference in one, Jesus, one generation singing, what a friend we have in Jesus? And the, the next generation saying, Jesus is my homeboy. And I just want to say to you today that really it depends on whether or not the generation that's singing, what a friend we have in Jesus, really understands this whole transcendence principle. The answer to the question is, what's the difference in one generation singing what a friend we have in Jesus and the next one saying Jesus is my homeboy is two answers. It's either nothing, there is no difference, or it's everything. There's a world of difference. It depends on whether your parents or your grandparents who grew up singing what a friend we have with Jesus understood that this was a holy God who was unapproachable except for the love of God who bridged the gap. Because I want to tell you what happens when we grab these ideas apart from, when we think of Jesus being my buddy and not Jesus being my Lord, is both of those ideas can promote, A, the love of God without any mention of the holiness of God. 
Now, some of you have come from holiness backgrounds and you heard such a holy God that you felt beat up all the time and it was all about a dress code and it was about constant behavior and it was about laying down at night in bed wondering if Jesus came back, if you would even be among his chosen because you know what you did that day and the bad thoughts you had and the words where you let it slip and the anger that you had and the lust that was in your heart and the whole focus was always on a holy God and it was, it was unattainable. But I, I, I think that for the most part in our current generation right now, it's not the emphasis on a transcendent, eternal, dwelling, high and holy God, but it's on this Jesus is my homeboy, Jesus is my buddy. And so to some degree, I want to tell you, we're hung over here on this side of the pendulum and God wants to bring you back, not to swing you into some legalistic extreme where you're working your way to earn your way with a God who's angry with you because that's not true either. Is anybody hearing me today? I don't want you to take a bath in this ditch on this side of the road and neither do I want you to run over here with a new revelation and just lay down in that one and just splash all around. I want you to get up on the road on the highway of holiness and start to understand this is the way, this is the path. Walk you in it. He is a holy God. He is a loving God. And he shows me both of those realities in this amazing God-man by the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Secondly, both of these, what a friend we have in Jesus. Put a nice steel guitar in there and have Alan Jackson's soothing country voice singing it to you. I don't want to offend anybody. My wife said, "Huh, uh Not a country fan. Those of you who are, that's fine. Jesus can be your cowpoke, cowboy, whatever. I don't care. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We've all made our own personal Jesus. It can promote acceptance without any reverence. Oh, God loves me just like I am. You hear me say that all the time, but I don't stop there. I say God loves you just like you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. He's going to transform you. Third one, both of them can promote relationship without commitment. God rightfully expects something from us because he has reached to have a relationship with us. My wife and I have enjoyed 27 years together because we have expectations of each other. It is not just my demand and her fulfilling. It is not just her demand and my fulfillment. It is love, but it is also expectation. It is acceptance, but it is reverence for the commitment. It is relationship with accountability. How much more so is that with a God who loves us? Two things that I'm done this morning. Are you getting anything out of this message? The Spirit of the Lord has really helped me in this service. I think do a better job. Two things. Two things and I'm finished. My view of Jesus matters. Jesus is priest. He is priest. Everybody say priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. 
King James says, King James says, we do not have a high priest who is not touched by the feelings of our infirmities. And it's the Greek word sympatheo, sympathy. And it says it here in the ESV. That's why I love this translation because I don't have to take time to translate Greek words and show you the language that sometimes the King James is hard to understand. It says right here, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Your struggle this morning, sir, the worry, the insecurity in your heart, ma'am, wondering whether the relationship can last. God knows all those things. He's been in the place you've been. He's been rejected. He's been despised. He's been wounded. All points tempted like as you are. Matthew 4, Luke 4. He's in the wilderness. The enemy comes to tempt him. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, body, soul, and spirit. The enemy hits him where he's weakest. But the difference between the way Jesus handled it and our forebearers in the garden handled it is that Jesus overcame where Adam and Eve were sucked into it. Jesus knows everything you're facing, the struggle, the greed, the fear, the doubt, the worry, the lust, all of the temptations that hit every one of us. He's already been in every one of those places and he did it without sin. He is our priest. Every time we deal with one of these out of balance issues, it's typically something that Jesus does for us. It is a priestly truth. Let me just back up and make sure you understand Though I might take a pot shot at what we call the health and wealth gospel, I believe Jesus will heal you, and I believe he wants to bless you. I believe that's Bible. I believe it's solid word. I believe it gets out of whack. Any one of these things where we start to isolate that truth apart from the rest of the whole of Scripture. Are you with me? Okay. Secondly today, and this is the last part of the third point, Jesus is not only priest who does something for me, but he is king. He demands something of me. Listen today as I read the description from how Jesus revealed himself to the apostle John. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, that's the right response. John is trembling at the word of his Messiah. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. This morning, as I close this and I ask you to consider with me In your own walk with God, you're a believer. 
has it maybe swung in a little out of balance and become a little too casual? Is there something in your heart or your life that maybe you've brushed under the rug and you know that Jesus wouldn't go there, he wouldn't participate, he wouldn't ride and do that, and you know that you really need to deal with it because you're wrestling with it, you're harboring it, you're hiding it, and it hinders the time that you want to experience the intimacy with him when you're worshiping him. Or maybe this morning you're in the place where you've seen a great God preach today who is holy, whose word screams, be holy as I am holy. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And you're in a place where you're going, I desperately need God to touch my heart and my life because I know that I am a sinful man, that I am undone. I am, I am wretched. I deserve. Listen to me. If God gave me right now what I deserve, justice, I would be in hell. That's what I deserve. But thank God for his grace. His grace has come and touched me and changed me. And grace is not just a blanket that just throws up and covers every bump and sinful thing in my life. But grace gets down on the inside of my heart and it starts working into the fiber of my being and it, it starts moving and wrestling with my thinking and it, it begins to strengthen me and give me the power to say no to things that I always got sucked into before. And, and, and now that grace is a part of me, I, I may still have a temptation with something that I used to struggle with and I may even go back and try it once in a while. But you know what? There is something there that lets me say, you know what? I didn't birth you. I didn't, I didn't make you. I didn't destine you as a man for this. I made you for something greater. I didn't call you to live in that pig pen of sin. And I may try it, but you know what? I can't enjoy it the way I used to because something different is down on the inside of me now and it's the presence of Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're facing this morning. You know what? It's not important that I do because there's one who knows everything. That's the transcendence of God. He can share his goodness with you and you can learn to be good. He can share his mercy and you can learn to be merciful. And we can talk about all the communicable attributes of God where in his image you can be a loving, faithful, merciful, gracious person. But he can't share some of these things that are, we call incommunicable attributes. And that is his omni-anything, his omnipresence. You can't be everywhere at once like he can. He can't share that with us. That's what makes him transcendent. He knows everything. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He has all power. Some of us may, might be pretty strong, but ain't nobody in the room that is omnipotent. Only God. Those are the things that make him other than us. He is transcendent. He's holy. He's living in eternity. He's high, the lofty one. And thank God that lofty one loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus left a throne, got up off of a throne in heaven and came down and lived as a man on the planet. And that's the answer for your struggle is do you know him this morning? Is he in your heart? Listen to these words. Nicole Nordeman sings this song on Caleb. She says, have I come too casually? Because it seems to me there's something I've neglected how does one approach a deity with informality and still protect the sacred? Because you came and you chose to wear the skin of all of us. And it's easy to forget that you left a throne. And the line gets blurry all the time between daily and divine. And it's hard to know the difference. 
Oh, let me not forget to tremble. Oh, let me not forget to tremble. Face down on the ground, do I dare to take the liberty to stare at you? Oh, let me not. Oh, let me not forget to tremble. What a shame to think that I'd appear even slightly cavalier in the matter of salvation. Do I claim this gift you freely gave as if it were mine to take with such little hesitation? Because you came and stood among the very least of us and it's easy to forget you left a throne. Oh, let me not forget to tremble. Oh, let me not forget to tremble. The cradle of the grave could not contain your divinity. Neither can I oversimplify this love. Oh, let me not forget to tremble. Face down on the ground, do I dare to take the liberty to stare at you? Oh, let me, oh, let me not forget to tremble. Bow your heads with me today. God, we tremble at your word. I want to be a pastor that trembles at your word. I want to be a husband that trembles at your word. A father that's humble and contrite. And Lord, you, you leave your high and holy place and you come and you get in the circumstances in the middle of my life if I will just be humble and lowly and contrite and tremble at your word. I just believe there's some people this morning who've been not only taught, but Lord, just because you and your Holy Spirit are able to do what I can't do, you're able to teach them and to touch them by the power of the Holy Ghost. With that this morning, I would just ask, with every head bowed, every eye closed, is there anybody in the room today, you're sensing the presence of the Lord moving over your life, and you've never personally crossed the line of faith and said, Jesus, save me, come into my heart, transform my life. It's not about climbing up a ladder of religion to get to the transcendent God because that ladder has an infinite number of steps. You'll never get there. We can't. It's impossible. But Jesus became the ladder, and he came down to earth. And it's one step in his direction, because he's on, standing on the same ground you are. Planted the cross firmly in the earth, and he hung between the two, heaven and earth. And he said, it is finished. It's paid for. Very simply, all you do is you say, Jesus, I need you to touch me. Save me. Three words. Jesus, save me. Anybody who wants to do that this morning, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm going to ask you, if you would, if you'd like to be included in this prayer with nobody looking around, if you would just slip up your hand. I just want to include you in the prayer with me up here on the platform. I want to pray for you. Anybody in the room saying, yes, there's a hand over here. Anybody else in the room crossing that line of faith saying, Jesus, come into my heart. Yes, I saw another one. Thank you, Father, for your word and the lives of these people right now. Touch change, transform. Lord, is these pray and say, Jesus, forgive me, save me. Spirit of God, do what only you can do. Nothing I've said can do that. Only your presence can change a heart. Regenerate a man from death to life. Change the heart of a woman from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We put our trust in you. Every heart still bowed before the presence of the Lord. Every head still bowed. just want to ask you right now, you've been walking with the Lord for a number of years and maybe you've sensed that just haven't had time in the Word and maybe things have got a little out of whack. Maybe there's something that you're 
dealing with and just sort of had kind of a little bit of that Jesus is my homeboy attitude. And you need to see him so high and lifted up. You want him to invade your life in a new and a fresh way. And that's, you know, that starts with when you see him in a new way. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and he changed his life. Anybody in the room, if you want us to pray for you this morning, just slip up a hand right now. Yes. I see a good five or six people around the room. Father, thank you for these. I just lift my hand and I say, do a new work in my heart, Jesus. Forgive me for being cavalier, for being casual in my relationship with you. Do something new and fresh. Thank you that you are my friend, but thank you that you're my king, you're my Lord. Thank you that you're my provider, but Lord, thank you that you're also my father who will love me and who will discipline me at the same time. God, thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said.